Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host today. Uh, joining me in our virtual studio from all across the planet are Erica, Doug, and Gabby. Uh, unfortunately, Tiffany's not going to be here with us today. Uh, she's busy with other engagements. Um, we are having some issues with Blog Talk Radio today, so if one of our co-hosts happens to drop in and out occasionally, we'll try our best to pick it up and keep the discussion going. Um, today, our topic is vaccines. It's going to be a hot one. Uh, more specifically, we're going to be talking about the flu shot, and we're going to do our best to present you some reasoned uh, data and information. Um, and because we're talking about vaccines, because it's a medical thing, I want to say something really quick and say that the views and opinions expressed in this episode are not intended to constitute medical advice. If you have questions, we encourage you to do your own research and to consult your own healthcare practitioner before you make any medical decisions for yourself or your family. So we just wanted to say that um, because we, we want to go through this and discuss it, tell you what we've found, um, but we are not trying to be your doctor. Uh, that's something that you, that's a choice you got to make on your own. So um, vaccines have been a, a hot topic lately. It's all over the web. It's all over the television. Uh, we're hearing a lot about the flu. We're hearing a lot about measles. Um, and so we wanted to cover this topic today. And Doug is going to start off today by giving us a brief history of uh, vaccinations, or maybe not so brief. We all have a lot of notes <laughs> today, so... Um, yeah. We'll do our best to condense everything, but Doug, you want to go ahead with that? Yeah, sure. And I will try to be brief, even though I've got pages and pages of notes here. Um, okay, so vaccination. Um, a lot of people credit uh, Edward Jenner as uh, the uh, developer of the first vaccine, um, who created the smallpox vaccine back in 1796. But there's actually evidence from uh, 700 to 1,000 years ago, the Chinese um, were experimenting with inoculation. Um, they would powder um, different disease material and actually blow it up the nose of their patients as a snuff. Um, interesting to note, though, that they actually abandoned the practice after finding it as being ineffective. So that's pretty telling right there. Um, Edward, Jenner, uh, Edward Jenner in uh, 1796 uh, used material from cowpox pustules um, to provide uh, protection against smallpox. Um, he is credited with uh, the eradication of uh, smallpox, uh, but despite this, in uh, 1871 and 72, uh, England, despite having 98% of the population aged between 2 and 50 vaccinated against smallpox, um, experienced its worst ever smallpox outbreak with 45,000 deaths. Um, during the same period in Germany, with a vaccination rate of 96%, there were over 125,000 deaths from smallpox. Um, then in 1885, Louis Pasteur uh, uh, created the rabies vaccine, um, but uh, much evidence has come to light lately, um, uh, evidence of fraud um, and unethical science. Um, this all surfaced when uh, Pasteur's private notebooks uh, became public. They only actually became public recently, like in 1995. Um, they were tightly guarded before that, and I think there's good reason behind it because uh, it looks like he was a bit of a, well, he was a bit crazy. Um, Antitoxins and vaccines against diphtheria, tetanus, anthrax, cholera, plague, typhoid, tuberculosis, and more were uh, developed through the 1930s. Uh, in the 1940s, Maurice Hillman uh, developed multiple vaccines for a variety of diseases, uh, including the MMR vaccine, swine flu, and hepatitis B. 
Uh, middle of the 20th century, methods for growing viruses in the laboratory led to a rapid, uh, rapid innovations, including the creation of vaccines for polio. Uh, interesting fact, in 1977, Dr. Jonas Salk, who, was, uh, who developed the first polio vaccine, testified along with other scientists that mass inoculation against polio was the cause of most pol uh, polio cases throughout the USA since 1961. So, again, quite telling. Uh, other interesting fact about the polio vaccine is that uh, Europe experienced the same rise and decline of polio cases as were seen in the U.S., yet they never had a polio vaccine. Um, researchers targeted other common uh, childhood diseases throughout the rest of the 20th century, including measles, mumps, and rubella, um, developing the MMR vaccine. Um, vaccine research now is delving into RNA and new delivery methods, some vaccine research is beginning to focus on non-infectious conditions such as addictions and allergies. So uh, don't be surprised if in the future they're trying to inoculate you against your insidious tobacco addiction. Um, there is an author by the name of Tetiana, and I'm going to totally butcher her last name here, Abukanich. Um, she has a PhD in immunology from Rockefeller uh, University in New York, and she's the author of a book called The Vaccine Illusion, how vaccination compromises our natural immunity and what we can do to regain our health. Um, according to her, the entire history of vaccination represents uh, like a sort of shortcut in the study of human immunity. Uh, rather than study the natural human response to disease and learning from it, uh, immunology instead studies an artificial process of immunization, the immune system's response to injected foreign matter. Um, injection uh, in itself uh, harbors special dangers versus natural oral exposure to infection. Uh, injection bypasses the vast majority of the body's immune system, delivering an antigen straight into the bloodstream, rather than mimicking how it would be, we would be exposed naturally, um, like, you know, by breathing it in or by through the digestive system or even like just skin, skin contact. Um, so it's kind of, it's an artificial process that bypasses that whole, whole um, segment of the immune system. Um, vaccination is trying to secure immunity without actually going through the disease process. And as a result, immunologic research has completely failed to get an understanding of naturally acquired immunity. Um, some people claim that the evidence for life-saving effects, specifically for the flu vaccine, are, are clearly seen in the figures showing declining mortality in recent years. However, flu mortality dropped dramatically um, and started to bottom out well before the uh, vaccination became widespread. Um, and this is, you know, what a lot of the pro-vaxxers rely on um, for their argument is like, well, look at, look at um, how vaccination has been so effective in eradicating these diseases. But um, vaccines have historically been used, um, sorry, have been historically introduced toward the end of epidemics when the disease uh, progression curve is already showing a natural decline um, in the population. Uh, so vaccines are yeah, generally given, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to uh, just support what you said there. When we had been talking uh, before the show, we were looking at some graphs and um, showing that uh, it was basically sanitation and uh, sewage control, right, that instituted mm -hmm. a, mm -hmm. a major decline in a lot of these diseases. And that when you look at when the vaccines were introduced, it was a lot later and the graph was already very low. Yeah, exactly. Um, yet despite that fact, they, they basically take the credit. Um yeah, and it, it's also, you know, the, the natural growing um, immune response in the population. You know, as people are exposed, 
they might catch the, the illness, but they're naturally becoming resistant to it because that's what our immune systems do. Um, you know, our immune systems are capable and better equipped if left alone to respond to these out outbreaks naturally in most cases. You know, there are obviously, um, um, you know, uh, exceptions to this. But uh, in a lot of cases, if, if just left, left alone, especially for these uh, relatively benign childhood diseases, um, the, the, the immune system is capable of dealing with it on its own. Um, so claims that vaccines have been responsible for the eradication of many diseases in the past 100 years, including polio, smallpox, and whooping cough, and diphtheria, are largely based on epidemic studies rather than on clinical evidence for effectiveness. Um, also, many diseases were once thought to be eradicated simply take on different forms and are given different names. Uh, for example, spinal meningitis and polio have almost identical symptoms, and cases for spinal meningitis have increased since the decrease of polio cases. So I thought that was very interesting right there, that uh, a lot of these times these diseases aren't actually eradicated. They just, you know, go through a minor mutation or something, then we start calling it something else. But um, the idea that these vaccines are kind of wiping these off the planet is, is questionable. Um, and just to finish off here, uh, despite hundreds of years of research, there have never been any medical studies that clearly demonstrate that vaccines increase the immune system competence of the human body, nor has there been any single medical study of long-term effects of vaccines. Hmm. So when people want to argue the data and say, you know, if you don't get vaccinated or if you don't vaccinate your children, you're putting the herd at risk, uh, so to speak, um, what you're saying is there's not any actual data to back that up, not anything that's been studied long term. No, there's not. And I'm going to go more into herd immunity kind of later in the uh, in the show, because that, that's a, um, a total fallacy in and of itself. Hmm. Well, but yeah, we'll go into that more uh, as we get move forward here. Um, now, we had some interesting points that uh, Gabby was going to bring up. Uh, Gabby, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. I'm having internet All right. connection problems, but it's working. Yeah, we're just... <laughs> well, uh, if, if, we do ha if we do happen to lose you, we'll just try to pick it up. Um, but yeah, Gabby was going to talk to us a little bit about um, some interesting things around the, uh, like, for instance, one of the things that we had talked about was the uh the nutritional deficit that's that's been coming about in the last hundred years with our population we see a, an increase in illness now granted um we don't see you know twenty thousand eighty thousand a hundred thousand people uh you know in let's say london or something like that dying from you know the plague um but we do see this overall decrease in health we see that everybody is much more susceptible um and uh we look at that you know from one point of view is looking at uh, the advent of uh, processed foods. Um, there's a lot more uh, materials that are harmful to the body in our diet. Um, there's a lot more industrial toxins now than there used to be, so things are knocking down everybody's immune system. But Gabby had some really interesting points about earth changes um, and cometary events that may also tie into this picture of the decreasing health of, uh, of our population, and as well as uh, percentages of the effectiveness of vaccines um, actually from the data. So, Gabby, do you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, just to illustrate that point, for example, here in Spain, at least in the province of Aragon, we're dealing with an unprecedented flu season. We're not even at its peak, and there has been, like, no space in the hospital for three or four consecutive weeks. 
you know, daily scheduled surgeries have to be canceled just because to give space to people, you know, and we send most people home and just, you know, hospitalize the ones that are like very, very complicated or sick. And mm. again, we can speculate using earth changes because, you know, as uh, we have uh, um, an increasing rate of commentary, you know, um, testimonies or impacts uh, during the last years that we have rep- as we have reported at, at SOT.net. And uh, we have to keep in mind that viral particles can attach to cometary debris. So as the comet dust loads in the upper atmosphere, it can come down on Earth, so to speak, by, as by Earth changes such as storms, volcanoes, monsoons, but also cometary impact events. And um, researchers have compared, you know, numerous plagues throughout history, which coincide with cometary bodies in our skies. You know, we can speculate that even the Ebola outbreak, you know, in Africa can be related to that. And uh, that's just an interesting point to keep in mind because it's not only the nutrition of the population, it's also like the the viral load and uh, it's... um, it's virulent. It's also increasing in the last years, you know. And uh, there's just a note about that. And as far as the flu goes, well, believe it or not, the flu shot for this year has one of the highest rates of success, you know, with an abysmal 20% success rate, you know, reported by the CDC, which is the Centers for Disease and Control and Prevention, this is the government from the this is from the government, uh, the U.S. government, and according to some um, records of the past, for example, oh, oh we lost her. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll we'll work with that as we go. Um, one of the things uh, just Gabby had mentioned the. Uh, these commentary events um, being attached to outbreaks of uh, plagues in the past. And um, I realized that that is something that uh, may be entirely new uh, to people who might be listening to us right now. Like, what do you mean, you know, comets and, and plagues? Um, if you uh, go to SOT.net, S-O-T-T.net, and just do a search for Black Death, and you'll find a very interesting article there that Gabby had written about those connections. Um, SOT also has a lot of resources available tracking uh, comet and meteor impacts over um, the last number of years and showing that it's been increasing, um, showing that the uh, that we're, we basically have a, a, a much larger number of um, near-Earth objects that are showing up around the Earth, and that when these objects past the earth, there's this uh, cometary dust and debris that gets trapped in our upper atmosphere. And there's some data to show that um, viruses can be transported from other places in the solar system, even other places in the universe and basically deposited here. Um, So if, you know, if that idea sounds crazy, you just take some time and look it up. It's really, really fascinating. And uh, I, one of the first kind of revelations I had about that was, um, you know, my mom always told me, don't go out in the rain because uh, you're going to get sick. And then it, it, when I was reading up on this material, it dawned on me, well, they, yeah, the the rain is 
bringing down these uh, viral particles from the upper atmosphere. And so that might be one of the reasons, aside from, you know, the fact that there are toxins and stuff just from our own planet and our own industry that's going on. Um, but it's, it's a really fascinating area. So I'd encourage everybody to check into that if you if you are unfamiliar with that. Um, but uh, when we lost Gabby there, she was, oh, it looks like she might be back. Let's see. She was going to talk about the percentage of effectiveness of the vaccines this year. Gabby, is that you? Yeah. Yeah, that's me. There we go. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, okay. no problem. I was saying the 20% effectiveness for this year. And I was going to say that, you know, a study published in Lancet in 2012 basically said that it was effective only in 1.5 1, 1. out of 100 adults. That is, there was 98.5% chance it won't work. This is from, you know, the CDC government, you know, this is like, um, right. Why do we are giving, recommending this flu shot again? And uh, yes, percentages of success, you know, they give it like a 16%, 14%. And um, this year is like 20% in average, but 12% for certain group ages, like people, young adults, for example. So, yes, and according to researchers who monitor the rates that the CDC claims um, is successful, um, and it depends on the study cited, you know, the vaccine efficacy really actually ranges from 0% to 12 14% at best. It's really like a total failure. Yeah, that's not a very high rate. So, and those numbers <clears throat> are from the CDC themselves. That's right. Well, um, that being said, uh, Erica had some uh, some information that we wanted to go through because uh, when this conversation comes up, obviously it's a really hot topic right now. Um, it's been on the news all over the place. And I know just in my own experience when I talk to people, um, not of course not everybody, but some people have the uh, the impulse to get really you know verbally violent about this because it's it's mm -hmm. about you're endangering everyone else um, and it's not just like something where you do that for yourself it's it's as though you were harming everyone else um, and so it's really hard to even talk about but um, so in order to give you some more data uh, to think about and to look up uh, Erica wanted to run through some of the ingredients that are in um, vaccines, and we're specifically talking about the flu shot right now. And Erica, there was something else that you had said too about how you can actually get this list of ingredients uh, from your practitioner. Is that correct? Yes. Um, basically, um, as kind of to take off on what Gabby was saying, um, there's information available out there. You just have to kind of look for it. And um, you can go to. Um, here, uh, this the CDC website, and they have a list, and it's um, called Vaccine Excipient and Media Survey a Summary, and excipients included in U.S. vaccines by the vaccine, and it's the CDC website. It's a PDF file, and basically they give you the ingredients that are in each vaccine. And so I wanted to kind of um, cover that because aside from the virus like Doug had shared, you know, whatever it is for, for this particular discussion, the flu virus, 
there's a, a list of really crazy ingredients and um, I'm just going to take this opportunity to kind of share. So the CDC gives this information out um, and you can go to their website and then depending on the state that you're in, if you decide to get the flu vaccine, you can request, you know, the ingredients that are in that particular vaccine. And so it's not like this information is hidden or not shared. It's available for people who want to look at it. And um, it's some pretty toxic stuff. So I'll just start off with 2-phenyl-exinothal. It's an antibacterial agent, and they're using it now to replace thimerosal, which we'll go into in a little bit, um, which is mercury. And it's considered a very toxic material that can cause many um, side effects, including behavioral disorders, vomiting, diarrhea, visual disturbances, convulsions, rapid heart rate increase. Um, there's also aluminum in, in many forms, so aluminum phosphate, aluminum hydroxyphosphate, sulfate, aluminum hydroxide. And these work as an adjunct ad, and to stimulate your immune system's response to the virus and the vaccine. So aluminum is particularly dangerous neurotoxin. It has the ability to split, uh, slip past your body's natural defenses and enter your brain, potentially causing brain damage, Alzheimer's, dementia, convulsions, and coma. And uh, aluminum can even cause nerve death, right? And then there's ammonium sulfate, uh, a substance commonly added to pesticides. Um, it's not known at this time if it's cancer-causing, but it's been uh, suspected as a gastrointestinal, liver, nervous system, and respiratory system toxin. Also, beta-propolactine, a uh, high hazardous chemical on at least five federal regulatory lists. Um, it causes lymphomas <clears throat> after being injected into lab mice. And its true effect on humans is not yet known. Formaldehyde, also used as a preservative to stabilize the vaccine. Colorless, flammable, strong smelling, and it's mostly used in industry to manufacture building materials and produce many household products. It's also used to embalm dead bodies. And um, it's suspected in weakening the immune system, causing neurological system damage, genetic damage, metabolic acidosis, circulatory shock, respiratory insufficiency, and acute renal failure, so the kidneys. It's been classified as a known human carcinogen and is ranked as one of the most hazardous compounds on at least eight federal regulatory lists. Formalin <laughs> helps preserve the vaccine, so kind of like the formaldehyde, and it's a mixture of formaldehyde, menthol, and water. It's mostly used to preserve tissue samples in healthcare laboratories and presents the same dangers to your health as formaldehyde does. Uh, Monosodium glutamate, MSG, another excitotoxin and it poisons your cells and tissues. It's used as a stabilizer in vaccines and it's also found in many processed foods as we discussed last week. It's shown to cause retinal G degeneration, behavioral disorders, learning disabilities, reproductive disorders, and even lesions 
uh, of the brains of lab rats. Um, and also allergic reactions to MSG can be severe. Another one is MRC5, cellular protein. It's a human diploid cell taken from aborted human fetuses. And um, they're used as a culture to grow the live viruses. Um, also, oxytinyl 9 is a vaginal spermicide. Yeah. <laughs> and phenyl, phenol is also included in vaccines to help stimulate an immune response. And instead, it does exactly the opposite by inhibiting photogenic activity. Uh, phytocytes are your body's first line of defense. They engulf and digest antigens and activate the other elements of your immune system. <clears throat> Phenol is used in the production of drugs, weed killers, and synthetic resins. So you can imagine the effect on the human body. And it's considered to be toxic to your cardiovascular, gastrointestinal, nervous, reproductive, and respiratory systems, your liver, your kidneys, and your skin. There's also quite a few antibiotics in the vaccines. Um, one of them is gentamicin sulfate. It's an antibiotic that can cause deafness or loss of equilibrium. It can also be highly nef nephrotoxic, meaning it can damage your kidneys, and if multiple do doses accumulate over time. Another one is neomycin. It's another antibiotic that has multiple effects on your body, and it is a neurotoxin. Um, and it also can cause respiratory par paralysis, kidney damage, and kidney failure. It also retards your vitamin B6 absorption, sometimes leading to mental retardation and epilepsy. Another one is polymycin B, and it's got some nasty side effects as well, neurotoxicity and acute renal tubular necrosis, also the cause of kidney failure. So um, in addition to that, there's polysorbate 80, it's an emulsifier used in, like, ice cream, milk products, vitamin tablets, lotions, and creams. And it's not as safe as it sounds. Um, in a December issue of Annals of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, polysorbate 80 can affect your immune system and cause severe anaphylactic shock, which can kill. It also causes uh, cancer in animals. And then just one more ingredient is the thermosol, which is kind of the hot topic of debate in the whole autism connection with vaccinations. Thermosol mm. is used as a preservative in the vaccine, and it contains 49% mercury by weight and has been implicated in many health conditions, such as cardiovascular disease, autism, seizures, mental retardation, hyperactivity, dyslexia. The mercury is used in is um, second in toxicity to the radioactive substance uranium. So it's a powerful mm -hmm. neurotoxin and can damage the entire nervous system of an infant in no time. One more little nice ingredient is aluminum, and it makes the mercury a hundred times more toxic. So basically, it's just a chemical 
cocktail. And on the CDC website, they warn of um, side effects of the flu and what what some of the things may happen when you get the flu shot. It starts with mild problems, soreness, redness, swelling where the shot's given, hoarseness, sore, red, itchy eyes, cough, fever, aches, headache, itching, fatigue. Then it goes on to list more moderate problems. So um, saying, you know, that children, young children getting the flu vaccine are at increased risk for seizures caused by fever, and then severe problems. Life-threatening reactions from vaccines are rare. You know, this is the CDC, remember. If they do occur, it's usually within a few hours after the shot. So, and all that stuff is, you know, on their website available for people to read, and it's it's really frightening, truly. Yeah, I, interesting yeah. because um, I I uh, I was just looking through some of the sod archives, um, and I found a, uh, uh, an article from 2009 that said that children who get the flu vaccine have a three times ri- the risk of hospitalization for flu. <laughs> yeah, is, it's true. It's not. It's uh, it's interesting because it's not that uh, it, uh, its effectiveness is low. It's, there is actually research showing it is actually much worse to vaccinate, you know. Canadian mainstream media have reported it, you know, and um, also studies from New Zealand, Germany, Hong Kong. It is actually much worse to vaccinate. People end up with respiratory problems, um, infections such as tonsillitis, and um, that, well, in general, there is an increase in diseases in its uh, uh, in how ill people get, and uh, it's the country it's like you know <laughs> get sick by vaccinating yourself, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder if this is a good time to uh uh kind of hear from the other side, so to speak um i I had mentioned this to you guys before, and this uh this has been kind of making the rounds on the internet. It's referred to as a blistering response from a scientist to the anti-vaccination people. Um, and I'll just I'll just read this shortly, and I'll I'll drop out the uh, the f bombs and stuff. But um, <laughs> so somebody had posted a, uh, a you know a meme picture uh, about the ingredients in vaccines, and then you know saying to rethink vaccines. And so this this person who is an immunologist responded and said, if you mixed mercury, aluminum, phosphate, ammonium, sulfate, formaldehyde, and viruses and injected it into someone, you'd kill them because you have no pharmacological experience. They said, if someone in a lab mixed those things together, they know how they work, they have medically assessed and peer-reviewed evidence and strict guidelines to follow to create a safe and effective product. Why is it legal? Because they know what they're doing and know how to spell phosphate and ammonium. Now, granted, that was kind of funny and cheeky, but... You can see that his argument is it's it's an emotional appeal right there. First of all, um, if from my own point of view, uh, knowing that someone is a scientist and looking at this list of ingredients, really, for me, it just gives me the impulse to ask them, why are you using this stuff instead of researching natural ways to combat these illnesses? It's not like illnesses exactly. are more powerful than the human race has ever been. It's this crazy thing that we've never seen before. People have been combating illnesses through natural means for many, many years. And um, so let me just continue on this. Um, He says, you are single-handedly responsible for the skyrocketing resurgence of death caused by TB, 
measles and the worrying prospect of a return of smallpox. And he has a little breakdown here, and he says, mercury is an element in the compound thiomersol, which was part of many vaccines. It has been claimed with no tangible evidence other than a multifaceted correlation that thiomersols cause autism. This has been investigated thoroughly, and no causal link has been found, which I think is kind of interesting because what constitutes a causal link? Uh, he didn't really take the time to explain himself here or to cite any sources. When you look at the symptoms of mercury poisoning and, and the symptoms of autism that are expressed by autism, they're pretty much exactly the same. I think it's like a 99% correlation. And isn't that the same method by which a doctor would use to diagnose something? He would look at his list of symptoms, look at the person, and say, oh, they have this. And so you can look at somebody who's autistic, uh, by and large, and say, well, it's certainly possible that they have mercury poisoning if we look at the list of symptoms. Now, I'm not a physician, but that seems to me like a fairly reasonable conclusion, at least to be curious about the similarities. Um, he also says aluminum phosphate is an aluminum salt, which is used as an adjuvant in vaccines. Uh, an adjuvant is a compound which causes an immune response to be higher and stronger so that the immune system comes into contact with the attenuated virus more so that it can recognize the antigens of the virus and provide immunity. They are a necessary part of the vaccine if you want it to work well. Um, he also says ammonium sulfate is used in the process of purifying the proteins in the synthesis of a vaccine. It is also found in bread and flour, so you'd better learn to enjoy rice if you want to avoid it. I thought that was funny because I want to avoid bread and flour anyway, um, so I could leave the ammonium sulfate on the shelf for me personally. But his last point here is formaldehyde is used in the treatment and purification of vaccines and stops contamination. Most of this is removed before the vaccine is shipped, most, although some of it remains. So, first of all, if formaldehyde stops contamination of the vaccine, what constitutes contamination? For me, formaldehyde constitutes contamination. That's just <laughs> like, totally, I think I don't want these, you know, if some formaldehyde remains in the solution and they're telling you that, I personally would rather, then this is just my own opinion, I would rather deal with the flu and be sick for a week and up my vitamin C, vitamin D, selenium, other things like that, and fight it on my own than inject formaldehyde directly into my bloodstream. That's my personal opinion on that. Um, but it's just funny to see that, um, you know, it's it's become such a hot topic for people, and now uh, even scientists are coming out and arguing these points. But when they make their arguments, they don't make any common sense. Uh, at least to me, they don't. And uh, I don't know if you guys want to weigh in on that. I, you know, maybe, you know, considering I've never worked in a lab, okay, so I'm, I have to say that I'm not a scientist. But if I use my head, this doesn't make sense to me. And I would love to have a scientist sit down and explain that I should be injecting aluminum phosphate, ammonium sulfate, and formaldehyde into my bloodstream that's going to help me get better. That I don't understand that. You know, In addition you know. to the antibiotics, you know, the antibiotics that are, are put into these vaccines to, quote-unquote, eliminate stray bacteria found in the mixture. And as we know, or maybe not, that antibiotics wipe out beneficial gut bacteria and um, lower your immune system and even cause uh, an outgrowth of candida. So, you know, all those yeah. kind of cocktails cocktail effects are happening, yeah. like you said, instead of actually just getting the flu with a headache or sore throat and spending a day or two in bed to recuperate, you know, you're, you're 
inundating the body with all these things. And just from that ingredient list, you know, just the neurological effects alone and then all the effects on the on the immune system. And it, it would appear that, that the flu vaccine in this particular case and other vaccines really just uh, break down your immune system. Yeah. Making There's you a couple more of Oh, Doug, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say there's a couple of things that he says there that make me kind of uh, question what he's talking about. But like him saying that uh, aluminum sulfate, was it aluminum sulfate that's found in bread and, and other things like that? Um, ammonium sulfate. Sorry, ammonium sulfate. Um, you know, there's a big difference between taking something in orally um, and eating it, um, you know, allowing your body to kind of identify it, um, deciding what should be done with it, um, you know, maybe maybe even being able to eliminate it without actually absorbing it versus having it injected straight into the bloodstream. Um, so that right there is kind of, uh, you know, um, questionable in his whole argument. And his, his big emotional appeal of, um, you know, the, um, uh, the idea that this, this person is single-handedly responsible for the, uh, 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 the rise of these um, formerly eradicated diseases is completely fallacious. Um, I mean, that gets into yeah. the whole um, uh, herd immunity uh, question and all that sort of stuff, which, uh, which you know, I'll, I'll go into later. But that, um, you know, it's, it, you're, you're very much right that it is just kind of an appeal to emotion, um, yeah. the whole thing. Totally. Well, then that's one of the last lines of this little uh, blurb here. Is he says, uh, vaccinate your kids if you want them to live. End of. If you don't, uh, then you clearly don't love your kids and would prefer to see them die of completely preventable diseases. And, uh, you know, oh, that, so um, I think that leads in well to, uh, you know, to saying vaccinate your kids if you want them to live. Um, Gabby has some stats here that we were talking about uh, before the show of um, just the increase in uh, deaths that immediately follow vaccinations and illnesses. And Gabby, you said you had a bunch of notes with you. Do you want to uh, take a little while to go over yeah. that? Now, now that you just mentioned kids, you know, this is what gets me very angry, you know, because they recommend these vaccinations to the most vulnerable people. For example, uh, Professor Boyd Haley from University of Kentucky, he puts the analogy, he studies uh, mercury. And he says that a single vaccine given to a six-pound newborn, which could contain antimerosol, is the equivalent of giving a 180-pound adult 30 vaccinations on the same day, you know. And, you know, and kids just don't receive a single vaccine. They receive several of them. Then, speaking of mercury, the amount of mercury in a multi-dose flu shot is 250 times higher in mercury than what is legally classified as a target weight. So this is why we're injecting, you know, people. Um, the risk, for example, of developing Alzheimer's disease if you get five consecutive flu shots is 10 times higher than if you get one, two, or no shots. This is especially for, for for the elderly because after a certain age, they recommend the elderly to get a flu shot every single year. So it gets accumulated, aluminum, mercury gets accumulated. And it's exactly what they find uh, at a microscopic level when they examine tissues. They, they, um, the diagnostic of Alzheimer's disease 
it's called neurofibrillar, neurofibrillar tangles. And it's basically what happens when you accumulate mercury and aluminum in the long term in a tissue as well. So right there, you know, like a direct correlation. But mm. uh, but speaking of the U.S. government website again, um, there is a website called uh, Vaccine Adverse Event Report System. It's a government website. It's virus. And uh, checking the data, like at mid-January, not so long ago, a couple of weeks ago or so, since its inception, over 330 deaths have been reported um, caused by the flu vaccine. Over 100,000 adverse events have been reported. And this could be realistically increased tenfold or 100 times due to under-reporting because, you know, petitions are not encouraged to, to report adverse events. Nobody is, for that matter, you know. And, right. Um, so what, what, what constitutes an adverse event? Does that mean that somebody expressed flu symptoms, or did they uh, or something worse? But it can be something worse. For example, a permanent disability. It can be, for example, allergic reactions. One that is um, very strongly correlated with the flu shot is narcolepsy. People are like groggy, groggy, sleepy, you know. But also very complex neurological syndrome such as Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a paralysis, you know. Your legs get paralyzed and then the muscles get paralyzed. And when it reaches your respiratory muscles, you know, you have to be connected to a, to a machine, you know. It's a, well, you get the idea. And miscarriages, for example, the rate of miscarriages, by the way, among pregnant women who received flu vaccines during 2009 and 2010 season increased 4,250%. Right. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, yeah, like the population were basically guinea pigs for all these uh, list of ingredients, the cocktail that, that Erica just listed, because most of the adverse events or the toxicity is reported for each individual ingredient, and we don't know what the whole cocktail synergistically causes. We're seeing the results, you know, and the report for these statistics, we are getting an idea, but we, the population, basically are the, the guinea pigs, the results, you know. Yeah, and we do see a lot of really crazy effects uh, coming about. Doug, you had mentioned something called the MTHFR mutation. Can you go into that for a minute? Yeah, well, um, it's it's basically uh, a certain genetic mutation that's been discovered, like since um, people, uh, you know, the um, scientists have been kind, kind of looking more into the human genome. Um, and it's a certain mutation that um, interferes with um, methylation. Um, which in turn interferes with um, all sorts of different detox pathways. Um, so I was kind of uh, speculating that because, you know, the way you see these kind of extreme adverse reactions in some of the population, but not necessarily all of them. Um, and, you know, that's a, a pretty convenient way for um, these things to be dismissed outright, you know, especially like the whole um, autism connection. Um, but it's entirely possible that uh, people who have this MTHFR mutation, which um, uh, primarily interferes with the uh, the um, uh, the, uh, the body's ability to take folate and convert it to the type of folate that it needs to use, um, 
it's, uh, you know, anybody who has this sort of uh, mutation might be much more vulnerable to having these sorts of toxins uh, injected directly into their blood. Um, so it, it may be that, uh, you know, the, these are the people, these are kind of the uh, canaries in the coal mine that are um, having these uh, strong adverse reactions to these uh, uh, exposures to these toxins. Right. Yeah, I mean, and <clears throat> certainly, you know, uh, if we're, we're speculating about connections to uh, mutations and, and other things, I, I think that something that we don't necessarily need to uh, to even speculate about is just the, like we talk, we mentioned earlier, the nutritional deficit in the population um, mm -hmm. uh, across the world. Um, uh, you know, leaking radiation from all the way from uh, the, the nuclear experiments that happened through the, the 50s, um, into Chernobyl, into now Fukushima. Um, we see that getting into the food supply, the air supply, the water supply, um, industrial toxins, and then people eating processed foods that are basically a few molecules away from plastic for, you know, decades. Um, is now it's, it's not a wonder that you have all of these things hammering, hammering, hammering on your body, and then you go ahead and get this shot, which is this cocktail of chemicals. That maybe if you were a perfectly healthy person, it like perfectly healthy. It, it wouldn't do anything. But now, you know, and I'm just saying maybe in that case, now we can totally expect that it's going to knock people down. Um, and, uh, you know, I've seen other accounts from uh, natural practitioners that are, are effectively diagnosing um, uh, basically uh, vaccines, you know, whether it's a flu shot or any other shot that they got uh, for measles, um, smallpox, other things that resulted in the degradation of their joints, degradation of their bones, um, causing uh, conditions that resemble MS. Um, Doug, I think you mentioned uh, meningitis. That's very close to the mm -hmm. symptoms of, of polio. Gabby mentioned Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is also very similar to the symptoms of polio. And I start to wonder, like, I thought we cured polio, but it really seems like it's around still. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so, yeah, uh, and you... And even from, you, you mentioned, you know, these are natural practitioners reporting this, and I even know mainstream medical doctors like a rheumatologist basically is against the flu vaccine just because of his experience. Every time, you know, one of his patients with an autoimmune disease gets the flu shot, and the person has such a relapse in his disease that he just basically says, okay, no more flu shots for anybody. <laughs> these are like mainstream yeah. medicine, you know. Yeah, well, Gabby, you, guys you had mentioned something else. Oh, go ahead, Erica. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, the, the bottom line is that it, it, it's not working. You know, um, uh, there's a website called Alliance for Natural Health, and they do a really good job on a lot of uh, health and wellness topics. But in uh, December of 2014, they came out with this article, This Year's Flu Shot is a Dud says the government, mm -hmm. and any discussion of natural alternatives is not allowed. And they go on to say that, you know, an NBC report shows that people who get vaccinated each year may actually have less protection than those who don't. And mm -hmm. a University of Michigan study found that people vaccinated two years in a row didn't seem protected against the flu at all. Uh, Bloomberg mm -hmm. recently reported that the Nova, Novataris flu vaccine was linked to one serious illness and three deaths in Italy, and the country has suspended the use of the vaccine. So it's not even working. 
the uh, Alliance for Natural Health had a, another article in uh, February of 2014 about how the CDC is caught red-handed exaggerating flu cases and deaths. So it's like this scare tactic that you got to get the vaccine and it's not Oh, I think we lost Erica there. Yeah. Well, from what was uh, Erica was talking about, you know, the the effects. Um, I wanted to contrast that with no deaths yeah. reported from vitamins. <laughs> Absolutely not. We published an article recently, you know, um, covering like 30 years of um, of supplement safety confirmed by America's largest database uh, is the American Association of Poison Control Centers shows zero deaths from multiple vitamins, including A, B, C, D, E. Well, no vitamin whatsoever caused any adverse events, you know, and people are encouraged to report them. Mm. Mm. Well, I think that this... uh this leads pretty well into our um, discussion that we had uh, talked about before the show, and uh, Doug had mentioned that he wanted to go into herd immunity. Do you want to cover that for a little while? I, I think it's really interesting yeah. um, that, that herd immunity is brought up as one of the main uh, point. in fact, the main point uh, for people yeah. to get vaccinated, which is you're going to damage the rest of us. Um, but there's a lot of interesting yeah. details on that. Yeah, I mean, it ties in nicely with that uh, rant that the uh, the scientist um, you mentioned earlier went on saying you are responsible for the um, the rise in all these uh, previously eradicated diseases. Um, so, so just to give an idea, herd immunity is the idea that if a high percentage of the population is vaccinated, that their immunity will curb the spread of the disease and protect those who are ineligible for vaccination, like infants, the aged, um, individuals who are taking immunosuppressive medications. Um, and those who don't vaccinate are blamed for these uh, outbreaks. Um, compliance with max vaccination, vaccination is sold as the answer to preventing these epidemics. Um, but realistically, this is a pretty silly idea, even on the surface, because if vaccines work as they're purported to, um, an unvaccinated person should pose no threat to one who is vaccinated. I mean, that's simple logic, right? If vaccines are doing their job, then you really have nothing to fear from these people who are not vaccinated. Um, but, you know, the idea that unvaccinated children pose a threat to the rest of the vaccinated population um, is spread and used as kind of social pressure to uh, to force compliance. You know, it's like guilt people into um, getting the vaccine, even if they're um, skeptical. Um, so, yeah, herd immunity, um, it's entirely theoretical. Um, there's little to no actual evidence of it working in the field. Uh, it's actually an epidemiological construct, not an immunologic idea. So it's not the immunologists who came up with this idea. It's the uh, uh, epidemiologists who, uh, who have um, kind of spread this idea. Um, and even if it does work, uh, it's been shown to work in a very limited time period. Um, and it's quite likely that those who carry a natural immunity, who are um, exposed naturally to the wild virus, are actually carrying the bulk of the immunity to the rest of the population, not people who have been vaccinated. Um, just a, an ex, a couple of examples here. In, in 1967, the United States Public Health Service announced that uh, it was intending to eradicate measles through the use of mass, va mass vaccination. 
Um, despite widespread compliance, the epidemic did not stop. They still had an epidemic. Um, in 1970, there was a mass vaccination campaign in Wyoming um, against rubella uh, in, in order to stop an anticipated epidemic. Um, but ironically, nine months after this local vaccination campaign, an outbreak of rubella hit Casper, Wyoming. Um, the herd immunity effect did not materialize, and the outbreak involved over 1,000 cases, and it reached several pregnant women, pregnant women being uh, some of the most vulnerable to the rubella virus. Um, there was a study by Poland and Jacobson in 1994 that reports 18 different measles outbreaks throughout North America occurring in school populations with very high vaccination coverage. 71% um, to 99.8% of these students were vaccinated. Um, vaccinated children represented 30 to 100% of the measles cases. Um, so right there, that kind of draws into question this idea of herd immunity that, like, you know, just by getting vaccinated, somehow you're protecting the rest of the population. Um, yeah. Genetic variability seems to play a role. So um, how efficiently antigens are presented to the immune system for antibody production. So, um, yeah, the, the, each individual is going to vary in uh, how well their immune system does that and actually presents these antigens. Um, this variability might have something to do with the way the virus is introduced through injection rather than through uh, oral means where the uh, immune system can actually respond to it. Um, and important to point out that the revaccination of poor responders doesn't work. Um, poor responders re remain poor responders um, to further vaccination, and they can't contribute to herd immunity just by getting the vaccination over and over and over again. Um, the uh, proportion of vaccinated but non-immune young adults is, not, is now growing, um, while the proportion of older immune population who acquired immunity through natural exposure to the wild virus um, is diminishing due to old age. So over time, mass vaccination makes us lose rather than gain cumulative immunity um, in the adult population. So by relying on this kind of false introduction of the virus, um, which doesn't work as well as natural introduction of the virus, um, we are actually making ourselves more susceptible to these things, which may, um, you know, you could probably attribute to, um, or sorry, is, is probably attributes to the, uh, the reason that you're seeing a rise in these um, diseases that were previously thought to be eradicated. Um, in 2011, there was a measles outbreak in Quebec. Um, despite the fact that there was a 95 to 97% compliance rate in vaccination. So almost the entire population was vaccinated. Um, the authorities at the time didn't implement quarantine procedures um, because likely it's because they, they assumed that herd immunity would take effect. Um, so here we see this whole idea of herd immunity is actually quite uh, dangerous because people aren't relying on other means of stopping the spread of a disease um, because they're assuming that the herd immunity will just uh, um, kick in. Uh, the, there was a full-blown out, outbreak, uh, including 600 cases, and that's a, a low estimate considering a, the fact that these things tend to be underreported. Um, it was imported by a teacher um, after spring break who was himself vaccinated. 50% um, of the cases were uh, in people who were twice vaccinated. Um, and all these figures don't include uh, the modified course of the disease where, um, you know, the, they don't get the exact symptoms that uh, constitute um, the uh, measles. Uh, they get something slightly different, so they don't get reported in the same thing. So the numbers are actually probably quite higher. Um, 
Hmm. It's assumed that vaccinated individuals, um, even if they do contract the disease, do not actually transmit it to others, but this is in fact false. Um, proponents of this idea often cite a, a, a journal article that was uh, published in the Journal of American Medical Association, and it had the title, Failure of Vaccinated Children to Transmit Measles, which you know is quite um, leading right there. But a careful examination of the study uh, of the actual design of the study reveals that it didn't properly address the question it purported to address, um, whether vaccinated children who get infected during the outbreak can or cannot transmit the virus. Um, what the study actually did show is that uh, both vaccinated and vac unvaccinated children uh, didn't pass the virus onto their younger siblings. So, um, you know, it, 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 this is pretty common in, in studies when the authors don't get the results that they're looking for. They kind of um, will often, uh, you know, title the study and write the abstract in such a way that uh, it makes it sound like they did get that um, that result. And, you know, that's good enough for the media who don't actually read the entire study, so they spread that around. Um, there's a new study uh, out recently that vaccinated individuals um, not only can become infected with measles, measles, but can spread it to others who are also vaccinated against it. Uh, it doubly disproves that two doses of the MMR vaccine is 99% effective, as widely claimed. Um, it's found in the Journal of Clinical Infectious Disease, I believe that was in 2013. Um, it reports on a twice-vaccinated individual from New York City uh, measles outbreak, uh, was found to have transmitted the measles to four of her contacts, two of which themselves had received, received two doses of the MMR vaccine and had prior, presumably, of protective measles IgG antibodies. So, um, yeah, this whole, this whole thing about herd immunity, um, it's a nice theory, but it really doesn't seem to play out in, uh, in actual fact. Hmm. Well, that's really interesting. I think um, it would do for everyone to, to look into that more, uh, <clears throat> especially to... Uh, to look up those details so that you have that information at hand uh, when you're talking to other people and they're presenting, kind of, um, you know, moral arguments about this stuff and about how you're putting other people at danger, uh, that it's actually not the uh, not the case. Um, yeah, exactly. I will I had, say. Uh, um, it, oh. Oh yeah. Go ahead. Oh, in Please. relation to this, like what what uh, Doug was just addressing, um, if you. If you do have a child in school and they are unvaccinated, when uh, an epidemic breaks out like measles, your child is not allowed to attend school, and that's mandatory, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> it's a lot of fear tactics as well. You know, uh, parents yeah, sure. are just so overwhelmed by the debate, and if any parents are listening and need some guidance, on how to kind of address these issues and just have a little bit of knowledge and not be scared into getting things that they may not feel comfortable with. Um, I recommend reading on the SOT.net page, uh, America the Vaxxer Nation, an article that I put together specifically for parents who are kind of on the fence. They know that there may be something wrong, but they don't have the data. It's basically a, a list of information of several articles that were carried on SOT.net over the past five, six years that just gives more information about what we're sharing today and um, highlights 
what everybody's been saying here. And that really, as a parent of a young child, you still currently right now today have the option to opt out. Now, that could change any time, and Dr. Mercola talks a lot about about that on his website. Mm-hmm. But, you know, not to be um, afraid as a parent and be swayed because the school is going to give you a hard time if your child's not vaccinated, but just to persist with the research and, and make a decision for yourself and for yeah, your child. I, and the, the social pressures are what, what really, um, you know, makes the decision so difficult. You know, if people could just clear-headedly look at the data, uh, they would probably reach a conclusion fairly easily, you know. But it's it's the mm-hmm. fact that there is so much of this this conditioning and this this uh, emotional response to it, the, the whole idea that uh, anti-vaxxers are, are painted as these quacks and, um, you know, really, may, it, it, it's like they're, they're, they're portrayed as being stupid, you know, that they, they easily succumb to these um, emotional arguments and, and, and things like that when, in fact, it's, it's really the opposite. It's like most of the time the, the anti-vaxxers are the ones who are uh, better informed, um, so it, it really, it's so backward and, and very difficult to navigate for that reason. Right. And it's a, it's a personal decision. You know, it's kind of like our discussion last week about not eating wheat. It's, it's a personal decision and that's your right is to make those mm-hmm. decisions. And yet there seems to be this concern that, you know, oh, if you don't vaccinate your child, you're endangering everybody else's child, which just seems ludicrous, you know. It, it's, and as you say, it's a very hotly debated topic, um, even more so now than, say, it was 10 years ago, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and for me, as, 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 as a school teacher for many years, you know, it's, it's, again, having that knowledge and really – Respecting people's choice, whether they're for or against it. And then if you are against it, personally, I found you just use the religious exemption, and that tends to cut the the discussion pretty quick. You know, it's mm-hmm. just my religious choice that I, that I choose not to do it. Instead of trying to have the conversation of the back and forth where people are genuinely misinformed. Yeah. The signs yeah, that, of the uh, time. Yeah. Sorry, Jonathan. I, I, I was going to really, say that it, uh, is, that it is crazy because of what we have covered in the last hour. I don't know why there is a debate to begin with. It's just crazy to get, you know, to get the shot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hysteria. Yeah. That, yeah, that leads into... Um, uh, some quotes here from uh, Political Ponerology by Andrew Lobachevsky. And uh, if you've never read that book, I highly recommend it. Um, Ponerology is uh, P-O-N-E-R-O-L-O-G-Y. And just go to Amazon and look that up and you'll find it there. Um, it's a really fascinating book about um, uh, evil in power and psychopathy in, in power and how it uh, radiates down through the levels of society. <clears throat> and one of the things that Lobachevsky covers is this topic of hysterization. Um, and I just have a couple paragraphs here. And let me see. That's from 
Uh, it's from starting on a page 175 of the book. Uh, he says, when perusing scientific or literary descriptions of historical phenomena, such as those dating from the last great increase in hysteria in Europe, encompassing the quarter century preceding World War I, a non-specialist may gain the impression that this was endemic to individual cases, particularly among women. The contagious nature of hysterical states, however, had already been discovered and described by Jean-Martin Charcot. It is practically impossible for hysteria to manifest itself as a mere individual phenomenon, since it is not contagious by means of psychological resonance, identification, and imitation. Or, I'm sorry, since it is contagious by means of psychological resonance, identification, and imitation, uh, each human being has a predisposition for this malformation of the personality, albeit to varying degrees. Although it is normally overcome by rearing and self-rearing, which are amenable to correct thinking and emotional self-discipline. During, quote-unquote, happy times of peace dependent upon social injustice, children of the privileged classes learn to repress from their field of consciousness the uncomfortable ideas suggesting that they and their parents are benefiting from injustice against others. Such young people learn to disqualify, disparage, uh, disqualify, disparage the moral and mental values of anyone whose work they are using to over-advantage. Young minds thus ingest habits of subconscious selection and substitution of data, which leads to a hysterical conversion economy of reasoning. They grow up to be somewhat hysterical adults who, by means of the ways adduced above, thereupon transmit their hysteria to the next generation, uh, which then develops these characteristics to an even greater degree. The hysterical patterns for experience and behavior grow and spread downwards from the privileged classes until crossing the boundary of the first criterion of ponderology, the atrophy of natural critical faculties with respect to pathological individuals. When the habits of subconscious selection and substitution of thought data spread to the macro-social level, a society tends to develop contempt for factual criticism and to humiliate anyone sounding an alarm. Contempt is also shown for other nations which have maintained normal thought patterns and for their opinions. Egotistical, egotistic thought terrorization is accomplished by the society itself and its processes of converse, conversive thinking. This obviates the need for censorship of the press, theater, or broadcasting as pathologically hypersensitive censors lie within the citizens themselves. So... We can see it. I mean, I know that was kind of a mouthful, but if you read the book, you'll get a better idea for it. He explains how this process of hysterization is passed down through generations. Um, and in order to maintain a system of control, the hysterization needs to be maintained in itself. And so, as he said, um, a society tends to develop contempt for factual criticism and to humiliate anyone who might sound an alarm, uh, which I think is yeah. happening in the world of vaccines right now. Absolutely. Yeah, I have a perfect example about that. We have all heard about Andrew Wakefield, mm. who has been probably the most blamed doctor for any mistrust in the MMR vaccine. You know, he basically basically published a study linking MMR vaccine with autism and bowel disease, and his reputation was shot. You know, he dared to speak the truth, and they accused him of you know the very things they were doing: conflict of interest, crimes against humanity. You know. And um, 
you know, fast forward to last year, you know, and uh, we have a CDC whistleblower, Dr. Thompson, Thompson, William Thompson is his name, I think. He basically confesses that, yes, uh, he participated in CDC research, and uh, they were responsible for cooking up data, you know, because there was an increase in 300% in autism in African-Americans, you know, that were given the MMR vaccine, and they basically hided that data, you know. So he's right. Mm. Andrew Wakefield is now reivindicated a little bit too late, but, well, yeah, although he's been vindicated in the alternative press because that's come to light, still in the mainstream, he's he's considered the devil. Yeah, true. Yeah. Well, and also Getting after it. Thompson's uh, re- revelations, uh, a CBS News poll um, showed the public approval rating of the CDC um, declined to 37%, down from 60% the previous year. Uh, Thompson's whistleblowing received over 750 million Twitter impressions, um, mm. indicating that the vaccine efficacy and safety is is really on people's mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. The word is spreading. And I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's an important point. I mean, I I do think it's important for us to not allow ourselves to be split into camps, um, you know, where we're the smart ones and those people over there are the dumb ones. And then they think the same thing. They think that they're the smart ones and we're the dumb ones. And that is it leads nowhere. Um, You know, I think what's really important is to when when people ask you questions about it, tell them the information that you found and don't, you know, um, don't be derogatory. Uh, don't mock them. Don't make fun of them because of what you think about their position. It's very important, I think, to just sit down and be like, hey, look, this is, I, you know, I'm concerned about this. This is what I found. I want to share this with you. Um, and if you get into a discussion and if they start screaming their head off, well, then you kind of you see where that's going to go. Uh, but at least I think it's very important for people who who want to communicate this information to other people to be reasoned, uh, to be diplomatic. Uh, to be very calm, um, you know. Personally, I, I I see a lot of just all-out brawls and arguments erupt over this topic, and it all could have been avoided if if everybody could just calm down and have a conversation. Um, and you know, there's a lot of points to support that. Uh, you know, the the point of view that that vaccines are are harmful, like we've been going over for the last hour. But I think one of the main ones, if somebody does, let's say somebody does want to appeal to authority. And and they say, well, you know, I'm I'm going to do this because the authorities told me to. Uh, Gabby, you had mentioned something that there are mainstream yes. uh, organizations now that are even opposing I, the mandatory vaccination. Yes, I have a special a special message for all authoritarian followers enforcing vaccines, <laughs> <laughs> employees, and you know, uh, big groups oppose mandatory flu shots, including the American Medical Association. You know, these are big authorities, you know, it's mainstream medicine, and they oppose mandatory flu vaccination. It's the American Medical Association with over 200,000 members. It's the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons who specifically objects strenuously to any coercion of healthcare personnel to receive influenza immunization. It is the fundamental human right not to be subjected to medical interventions without fully informed consent. This is their statement, you know, I'm reading literally. 
And there's um, yeah. several other groups, you know, including the American Federation of Teachers, you know. It's all mainstream groups, you know. So that thing about, you know, having flu vaccines and forcing employees and, you know, it really doesn't have to be. Nobody should lose their job over, you know, refusing a flu vaccine, basically. Right. And much I'm, less I'm not die. A, I'm not a st- yeah. Yeah, much less die. I mean, I'm not a statist or anything, but I think that it's um, it's at least it's it's just a little bit reassuring that there are still some people in the organizations of government who who don't want to force this on people. I know that there are a lot who are. There are a lot of pathological individuals in power who would just as soon tell you exactly what to do and throw you in jail if you didn't do it. Um, but I, I guess I, I'm still holding out a little bit of hope that there's a few good ones left. Um, but it's very interesting that, uh, you know, we have, um, if I can find this here today, there was a USA Today uh, columnist that just recently called for, quote unquote, anti-vax parents uh, to be jailed, um, said <laughs> that uh, parents who do not vaccinate their children should go to jail. That's a direct quote. That's what he said. You know, and so that's coming. Yeah, that's coming out of the media. And. I want to tell this guy, your government doesn't even want to jail people for this yet. Anyway, maybe some people do, but, you know, even the AMA is coming out and saying, hey, whoa, we don't think people should be forced uh, to do this. So, you know, maybe that's propaganda from the AMA, but that is what they're saying. Um, You know, propaganda in the sense that maybe they're trying to deceive us and and kind of do a a sneak around back. Um, But at least here it is published information that they're saying, no, we don't think people should be um, forced to, to be vaccinated. Um, so it's almost like uh, what what Lobachevsky said about the, um, you know, the trickle down effect of this hysteria that it's the, um, you know, the people in the in the gen pop in the general population who are so um, hysterical about this and who are ready to jail people who disagree with them. Um, it's just incredible. It's unbelievable. Um, yeah, yeah. There, there was a similar article on on SOT um, about what you're stating, Jonathan, called "Vaccine Wars Penalizing the Unvaccinated," and he makes a really uh, good point. Big pharma, not activists, are responsible for the bro- growing mistrust of vaccines, and the debate isn't ultimately about the science of vaccines, but rather lack of trust of those charged with producing, monitoring the safety of, and distributing vaccines, because it's big business, right? Mm -hmm. He says the false narrative of science versus conspiracy theories is is peddled by the media, the government, and the corporations that hold influence over both, because a narrative focusing on the wisdom of entrusting criminals and mass murderers with our health is an open and shut case. So just what you were saying, again, going after a person who's exercising their right and asking questions is is ridiculed. And Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, of course, then if you say, you know, like for me, um, one, of, one of my own viewpoints, and this is a personal thing, but it's just something based on research that I've found, that, um, you know, the company who uh, manufactured and dis- distributes thimerosal, uh, is Eli Lilly and company, and they have a lot of kind of shady history. But just the the simple fact that they uh, manufactured and distributed Prozac to me is like I don't trust you. 
you know, <laughs> because I think I think Prozac was one of the most damaging things um, to the mental health of this country that we've ever seen. And so it's like, no, I'm not going to take one of your other products and inject it into me. No. <laughs> um, so if you if you're curious about the history of Eli Lilly and company, just go ahead and do a Google search on that. and You'll find some some interesting things uh, maybe we can cover that, cover that in more detail in a future show. But. Uh, I think right now we're coming up on <clears throat> our time to do our pet health segment, and we are very excited that we actually have Zoya with us in the virtual studio today. We don't have to play a pre-recorded segment. Hi, Zoya, are you there? Yeah. Hi. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yes, we can hear you. Let's go. A- <laughs> let's go ahead and uh, and get you played in here. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So what uh, what did you have to cover today? All right. So first of all, uh, the situation for pets is unfortunately um, also dire uh, regarding vaccines. It's it's not not worse in some in some uh, aspects. Like for example, uh, uh, in our case, we get you know some some uh, for example fundamental childhood shots or vaccines we get only once in our life. But in case of uh, animals, they get annual vaccinations. So uh, basically, that, that this situation is even worse. Okay, so uh, today uh, we are indeed going to talk about vaccinations. And since it's a very broad and problematic topic, uh, we'll take probably more than one short segment to explain why annual vaccinations are dangerous, uh, dangerous and unnecessary. And even some veterinarians claim that we shouldn't vaccinate our pets even once, that even one so-called puppy shot may jeopardize the health uh, of our pets and trigger an autoimmune disease. But since it's a bit topic, let's take it step by step. Okay, so first of all, let me share you a story by my favorite natural veterinarian, Dr. Karen Becker. She uh, shared the story from her time when she was in veterinary school. Now, it's a bit different system for me. Uh, I study, as I already told before, I study in East European school, and it's a bit different in uh, in U.S. Uh, so she said that basically one of the things that were mandatory for every student was to, re- uh, to receive a rabies uh, vaccination before starting the studies. And she said that... Uh, yeah, yeah, that it's actually mandatory. Well, for us, uh, luckily, it's, it's not mandatory. <laughs> well, so, so we were able all to avoid it. Uh, so she said something like this. She said that because she was already an activist uh, with wild uh, preservation of wild animals, then she was told that she can do a titer, something that's called titer, to basically measure the amount of antibodies in her organism, uh, in her system, to check the amount of uh, rabies antibodies, to see if, if uh, basically this uh, vaccine is necessary for her. And the amount of antibodies is something like uh, about 50. Uh, basically, the minimum amount is, uh, you know, no less than 50. And she had like, uh, like hundreds times more than this when she did the test. 
and she took this uh, rabies vaccine like years ago, the years before she basically was admitted to the school, to the veterinary school. And and she was told indeed that there was not uh, there was unnecessary for her to take this rabies vaccination again. And so she wondered, and and that's basically what other veterinarians, you know, more con conscientious uh, veterinarians are wondering, why we as humans take uh, major vaccinations, core vaccinations in our childhood only once, but for pets they they are basically forced to take those vaccines annually year after year. Something is really wrong here because our physiology is basically the same. You know, there are some minor changes, but but it's the same. So what's going on here? And uh, it turns out that it's, it's, it's just with, like with human vaccines, it's a big business. It's a, it's a big money-making business where uh, veterinarians are using fear by, uh, you know, they send those uh, letters, you know, they, they send those cards to, to the customers that uh, hurry up, you have only seven days left before your annual vaccination. Uh, you know, it's very important that you will come up and do it on time. And, and you know, most of, the, most of the people are not aware of how the things work and they are even less aware, uh, you know, how uh, immune system works and why it's really unnecessary. So uh, basically, uh, we are going to talk about right now. We are going to talk about that. What uh, what you can do, what you should do regarding vaccinations for pets, and uh, what you can ask your uh, veterinarian uh, to do before you are submitted for another. You know, your pet is submitted for another annual vaccination. So what are uh, the most, you know, what are the danger? What is the most danger of vaccines for pets? Now, uh, what happened regarding what happens regarding vaccines? That they basically uh, can trigger an autoimmune disease. They can jeopardize the health of the pet. They can lessen. Well, it, it's basically the same as for humans. That it can, uh, you know, uh, lessen the immune system. Uh, trigger all kinds of diseases, skin diseases, uh, heart diseases, every predisposition the pet may have, they can trigger such problems. So basically, uh, what it's important to remember that there are core vaccines and there are non-core vaccines. Like, for example, there are core vaccines for dogs, like distemper, parvo, adenovirus, and of course, rabies. And for uh, kittens, it's polycopenia, calyxivirus, herpes virus, and also rabies. And uh, well, basically the accepted right now, the less uh, damaging protocol for pets is that your puppy or your kitten uh, gets uh, the puppy shots until like, for example, three, four, months of age before basically before the change of the teeth and then you should wait a bit and then what you should do is that your veterinarian usually will ask you to do another shot but instead uh, instead of coming for another shot you should ask your veterinarian for a tighter for making a tighter because you should check for, uh, first of all 
if this, uh, if this vaccine was able to immunize your pet. Because there are some vaccinations where, you know, there are some vaccines where, where you can get a shot, but there, there won't be any immunity, immune response. So you basically got, you know, your pet shot for nothing. And uh, you need to, to vaccinate again. So you can check the title. And if there are already antibodies produced, there is really no need to vaccinate again. And so you can say, well, that, you know, and then next time, uh, for example, if the veterinarian will say to you that you need to come again for an annual revaccination, you can say to, you can say to him that according to new regulations, uh, well, there is some American association, something, you know, that has to do with the vaccines that according to new regulations, uh, you can come after three years and then even less uh, to revaccinate. But even in this case, you should ask for a tighter again and see if, if there was any change in the number of antibodies. Because if, the, even if there was no change, or maybe even there was a, a bit lesser number, you still don't really need to revaccinate again. It just causes additional damage. Uh, and for example, for indoor kittens that, uh, for example, you have an indoor kitten that never come uh, into contact with other outdoor cats. So in this case, you don't even have to vaccinate with, with those four core vaccines, but only with panleukopenia. And uh, it, the last dose should be at 14 to 16 weeks because uh, by the time the kitten will, will no longer have the protection base, uh, best from the mother cat. And this is another bigger issue that uh, in the past, in the 70s or something like this, uh, until 70s, they were doing another test that was basically testing uh, maternally uh, passed antibodies that were passed to puppies and kittens from the mother. And, uh, and then they were able to check uh, the exact, uh, they were able to determine the exact time of vaccination by the lessening amount of maternal antibodies. Uh, and, and also to see if and when there was necessary to vaccinate at all. There was a so-called nomograph uh, for puppies to determine whether they could be effectively vaccinated. So this is one of the things that they are not doing anymore. It's uh, it, one of the things that it takes time, and so and and basically it prevents from veterinarian to get uh, his or her money for the vaccination. So in order to speed up the business, to make the business more effective, they removed this option and they removed it. They, they stopped saying to, and I'm, I'm sure that many veterinarians even uh, are not aware of, of this option that they can check uh, both maternal antibodies and also antibodies after vaccination to check the titer to see if, if there is any need at all to revaccinate because really, uh, you know, they call it booster, uh, you know, annual booster. While in reality, uh, if, you know, I think that the 
I'll, I'll leave the explanation about the immune system and how and what exactly happens in the immune system whenever you know vaccine is entered and and, and all the reactions and whatever happens to the next segment. But basically, I will only say that uh, whenever anything, any antigen uh, is entering the body, uh, not only antibodies are created, but also memory cells. That basically, uh, immune system remembers uh, remembers the pathogen, remembers the danger, and so uh, it it can react again. There is no need for any boost. <laughs> to you know, to remind it of of the danger. You can say that it's it's basically it has a it has a memory of an elephant. It's a memory for life. <laughs> so so yeah. So so it's basically it's it's frustrating because it's the biggest lie there is. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I remember, uh, one of the teachers here said to me that he has a friend, a veterinarian also that specializes in dermatology. And he said that wow, dermatology is like the best field there is in the in veterinary science, because uh, the patients are always coming back. They will never get over those diseases, and it's like you just lessen the problem a bit with steroids and stuff. But then again, uh, you know, the immune system is a bit compromised, and then uh, all the skin problems uh, are triggered again. And and he says that wow, that's that's like a you know gold mine. Basically, well, that, that, that's just to give you an, to give you an example of of, of uh, veterinarians that well not not exactly ethical so to say, but uh, and and one of the things that many many of them are you can say benefiting from the racket that vaccines are, but they are not really aware of that or maybe they are aware of it I don't know, but that. Uh, vaccine, vaccines are basically the major trigger for all of those diseases. They uh, trigger for all the allergies and uh, autoimmune diseases, skin diseases, as I said before. Uh, so, so yeah, they. It's it's not surprising when the when the, especially you know the more pure breed the dog is, for example, mats are able to handle vaccinations or other problems more easily. But the pure the breed, uh, the more problems they have, and why? Because they already have predisposition for their breed, all kinds of predispositions: heart diseases, kidney diseases, uh, breathing diseases, and so uh, and so. This just being made worse, or actually being activated by the vaccine, uh, and so the puppy uh, that may that could live, you know, happily. Without any any disease being triggered, now uh, his system is being compromised by the vaccine, and so there is this cascade effect that uh, basically uh, jeopardizes everything. Mm. So so yeah, so I think that uh, well, for this segment it's 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 a bit general, but uh, next time uh, well, next time we will talk about vaccines. Uh, I will make sure to explain more about uh, immune system and why exactly it, uh, what exactly happens and uh, why uh, some of the veterinarians, like for example, uh, veterinarians like uh, there are some veterinarians that accept the possibility of the first puppy shot and and that's it, you know, like 
for now, for you, you know, the important message that you should take with you home and to your veterinarian that if you have a puppy, uh, then yes, okay, there are some legal regulations, like, for example, about rabies. There is no way around it. Uh, in many places, it's the law that you have to vaccinate rabies. So, okay, you have no choice to vaccinate rabies. Whatever is is the law, you have no choice, you have to vaccinate. Uh, there are some places where uh, rabies is, uh, like for, for example, mandatory every year, annually. So, well, you know, like uh, some veterinarians say, well, you know, you can't basically break the law, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't have to vaccinate annually rabies. If you can, avoid it. Uh, but regarding other vaccinations, with distemper and parvovirus, well, uh, it, it, it's a real danger. And I myself, I myself saw uh, dogs almost dying and some died from parvovirus. So it's a very serious disease. Um, well, basically, if your dog comes in contact with other dogs, uh, it's very contagious. So maybe it's probably for the best to vaccinate with those core vaccines. With cats, mm -hmm. uh, with kittens, as was said uh, before, panleukopenia. It's basically um, a feline parvovirus. Uh, it's it's panleukopenia. It's a, it's a parvo for kittens. And so, uh, even if the cat doesn't go outside, panleukopenia is the must. But with the other vaccines, well, uh, you don't have to. Like for example, here uh, in in East Europe, in the country where we reside. Uh, rabies, even if you do, if your pet doesn't leave the house, uh, even rabies are not mandatory. So, 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 so it, it, you should check, you know, in the country where you live, if you if you can just avoid it and that's it. But then, if you have a grown-up dog or a cat, and you know that you were already vaccinated, and you get those reminders from your veterinarian that you should come and vaccinate, okay come to for a general checkup, but ask a doctor if they can do a titer to check the level of antibodies for those specific viruses, for those, uh, for, for those specific, uh, you know, viruses that are contained in core vaccines and see his reaction, mm -hmm. if, you know, and, and see what he says. If they do, because some countries don't do it, like, for example, here we don't do it, Unfortunately, but in in European countries or in U.S., I think they will be able to do it. Uh, and as for other non-core vaccinations, like there is a leukemia uh, vaccine for cats, uh, or or other you know vaccinations, then don't touch it at all. Don't agree to it. There is nothing. You know, they, this is even much worse than the core vaccines. Core vaccines are much better because they were checked and rechecked again and again. And one of the good things for veterinary science, uh, at least this is what one of the main uh, immunologists in USA said, that uh, vaccines for pets don't contain mercury. And uh, I'm not sure about aluminum, but he said that basically it's mostly for humans. So yeah, in this case, humans are in disadvantage. Because apparently, uh, vaccination uh, field for pets is more advanced than humans, or at least this is what he said. 
<laughs> yes. It does seem that way. Even even in the uh, in the United States, there are laws against uh, injecting mercury uh, into uh, into animals, uh, either farm animals or pets. Yes, yes. Mercury is already outlawed, and it was actually once also used uh, as uh, you know as, as basically to treat all kinds of diseases in cattle. But uh, now uh, it's it's also outlawed. So they, uh, you know, there is only formaldehyde, for example, is used to treat uh, specific poisons in uh, cattle. But it's because of their very specific physiology, because of their, you know, poor stomachs. So, so that that that's sure. something very very specific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, for the topic for the vaccines for this week, I think it's. it's um, I hope that it was interesting and informative enough. If you have any questions, you can. Always ask, and I can cover it uh, later in in later shows about vaccines. Uh, totally. But now, was, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say that was really great. It was really informative. Thank you very much for that. I'm sorry if you uh, if I interrupted you there. We... No, uh, no problem. Pro- uh, it's just that um, I also received another question uh, from a listener. Uh, if, do I have a time? to cover it? Yeah, certainly, yeah. Okay. So the listener asks questions like this. I have a little cavalier King Charles Spaniel who turns around in a circle at least 22 times before finally squatting to pee. Why the turning and why so many times? Well, (laughs) first of all, uh, it it usually, you know, in in specific cases like this, it's better not to give advice without actually seeing the animal because it can be a lot of uh, a lot of you know reasons for it but when it comes to cavaliers uh, they are very very cute puppies but they are also uh, have a lot a lot of uh, predispositions for various health problems uh, uh, you know heart uh, problems like mitral valve disease uh, that can lead to heart failure they have uh, something called syringomyelia. Uh, they also have hip dysplasia, all kinds of problems. But in this particular case, if I were to speculate, they have uh, hereditary eye issues. And also they have um, typical for other spaniels ear problems. And that, that can also, that are also connected to um, a central nervous system problems or coordination center. So basically, it's possible without seeing the puppy. Uh, I can speculate that uh, it's possible that maybe uh, the puppy doesn't see well, or maybe there is a, some problem with ears that affects the coordination center. And uh, and and this way, he basically turns and turns and turns. To, to find the proper place, basically, you know, that because it, it seems to us that uh, dogs and cats are, you know, just sitting and doing their thing. But uh, there was even a, not long ago an article, a very interesting article. Uh, I don't know if you saw it on thought, but there was an article regarding uh, that dogs uh, pee uh, and, 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 and do other business. Uh, in accordance with the um, uh, with electromagnetic fields, that they are basically uh, squat to the north, 
to the uh, to the uh, to the electromagnetic center or to the north. So so I can say I can uh, I can assure you that it's not an easy business. Can you hear me? Uh yes. Yep, we can hear you fine. Thank you. Thank you very much for oh. addressing that uh that question. Yeah. I think we are uh, we're coming we're coming up on the uh towards the end of our time here and I wanted to uh if you don't mind I wanted to take a little bit of time with uh <clears throat> Doug to uh, to have him cover some alternative um homeopathic uh flu treatments for for people. Yeah, sure. Sure, no problem. Yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um I think it should be reiterated again, I, uh, as Jonathan said at the, the top of the show, that it should this shouldn't be considered medical advice. Um, you know, obviously whether or not you should uh get the uh get the, the flu vaccine is, is up to you and your medical practitioner or your, your healthcare practitioner, be that a a mainstream doctor or a naturopath or whatever that might be. Um, so there are a couple of um, homeopathics out there that can help um, um, as an alternative to the flu shot. Uh, the main one being one called Influenzynum. Uh, Influenzynum is uh, it's, it's basically a homeopathic preparation of the um, flu strains that the WHO has um, determined will be the ones um, kind of in circulation for the year. So a new one comes out every year. Um, and basically, they take the uh, the flu virus and uh, dilute it um, according to homeopathic properties. And you take that once a week for five weeks, and it, it acts as kind of an inoculation against um, the the flu. Um, there's also a couple of other ones. Um, there's one called Thymuline. Uh, Thymuline is uh, is a general immune booster, um, so that can be taken in a similar way, or you can take it um, if you do start to feel yourself coming down with symptoms. Um, there's another one called uh, oscillococcinum, um, which is a bit of a mouthful, but um, oscillococcinum is, uh, is actually a, um, an extract of uh, duck liver that um, is diluted. And then um, this is another one you take kind of when you start to feel symptoms coming down. You take it uh, every six hours, and it, uh, it, it will help to kind of uh, um, stop that flu in its tracks. Um, so yeah, I've taken uh, many of these myself, and I've actually found them to be quite effective. So uh, and also um, uh, a number of my coworkers uh, do the same. So um, yeah, I've got a fairly large sample size to say that these things uh, actually work, work quite well. Nice. We uh, uh, we also wanted to go over um, just some. Now what you're talking about is um, those are homeopathic treatments. Uh, that are specifically prepared for influenza, um, but we also mm -hmm. wanted to just briefly address, um, you know, uh, vitamins and supplements that you can take to boost your immune system and that you can actually take while uh, you are suffering from symptoms if you do have the flu or even some more severe uh, conditions. And now, just like Doug said, and we just want to reiterate, uh, you know, we are not trying to give you actual medical advice. You need to talk to your own practitioner, but this is stuff that we've come up through um, that we've come upon through our own research, um, definitely vitamin C. Um, look up uh, Linus Pauling. I'll look up a lot mm -hmm. of um, his research. Uh, I think he lived to be, what, 94, 95, and he took vitamin C every day um, and lived, you know, quite a long, healthy life. 
Um, but vitamin C can also be, it, it's also been shown to address many conditions uh, when taken in large doses um, over the course of while the symptoms are presenting. And um, <clears throat> uh, it's been also shown that you, instead of taking a huge megadose all at once, uh, you want to take smaller doses at, at higher, uh, more frequent intervals. So whereas a megadose might be considered something like 100 grams, which is 100,000 milligrams, which you can actually handle if you're sick, you'll notice that uh, you'll reach, you know, bowel tolerance where they say you're going to get loose stool at a certain point. Um, but if you uh, if you're not reaching bowel tolerance, it means that your body is using the vitamin C uh, to repair itself. Um, so it's much better to take that 100 grams and divide it down into say two gram doses every half hour throughout the day, um, and just keep taking it, keep taking it, keep taking it. And a, a lot of times personal experience, I've had that knock things out cold, like within a day and a half. Um, there's also vitamin D, uh, which is very effective, um, selenium, uh, zinc, and uh, oh, Doug, can you think of anything else we'd want to add to that list? Uh, well, anything that um, kind of boosts your liver's production of glutathione, which is kind of your main um, antioxidant, uh, your body's main antioxidant. Um, so NAC, uh, which is N-acetylcysteine, um, cysteine is, is a component of glutathione. So by taking NAC, you're increasing the, uh, the, the amount of raw material your body has to make glutathione. Um, alpha-lipoic acid is something that helps to regenerate glutathione. Um, so those two are taken, uh, are, are work well in conjunction with each other. Um, mm. There are a couple of herbs too. I don't know. Did, did, did you want to talk more about the herbs or? Yeah, it was, well, we had discussed a, in lieu of a, of a food recipe today because we're talking about vaccines and the flu. Um, we wanted to uh, just give some options that people can do for an immune boosting tea. And um, uh, I was just going to cover and say basically uh, turmeric, um, ginger, cinnamon, and cardamom. That that would be my, my recipe for a nice, uh, tasty immune boosting tea that would be effective. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I just wanted to go over some uh, information that I had pulled up here. Uh, turmeric is a, a powerful anti-inflammatory and uh, an antioxidant. Um, uh, ginger, the same way. Uh, throughout the world, I have a little list here of countries where they use, they actually just use ginger itself to treat the flu, um, coughing, nausea, vomiting, any symptoms like that. Um, Burma, China, Colombia, Congo, Indo India, Indonesia, Nepal, the Philippines, uh, Peru and Japan, and of course some places in the United States. Although we're we're a little behind the ball, we're still catching on. Rest of the world, don't hold it against <laughs> us. Uh, <laughs> but um, so ginger for sure. Uh, cinnamon is uh, also an antioxidant and uh, can increase um, blood flow to the heart. Uh, the National Institutes of Health uh, said that there's a chemical in found in cassia cinnamon called cinnamaldehyde. Um, which can help fight against bacterial and fungal infections. Um, and then cardamom uh, as well is used in traditional uh, medicine to treat throat troubles, uh, lung congestion, um, pulmonary tuberculosis, uh, inflammation, digestive disorders, uh, gallstones, and a number of other um, troubling conditions. Uh, can, it's also used in some places to treat venoms. So that that would be mine. Uh, I would say uh, take turmeric. Um, if you can get the raw root, uh, definitely much better to use that than the powder, I think, uh, just because you're getting all of those natural
compounds that are in the roots. Same with ginger, um, some cinnamon and some cardamom. Um, steep those uh, in some boiling water for say five to 10 minutes. Um, I found a number of sources that said that when you steep herbs like this for, uh, for something, for a remedy tea, you actually want to steep them quite a bit longer. Um, so play around with what you're doing, experiment a little bit, try uh, heating up some water and keeping it at a simmer and then steeping those herbs in their, uh, in the roots for say a half hour to 45 minutes, uh, and then cool it down, strain it out or drink it hot, uh, whichever you prefer. Um, I can indefinitely attest to, um, where I live, it gets cold in the winter, like really cold and, uh, Doug, you have the same issues up there, <laughs> but, um, yeah. my hands get really dry. My hands get really dry. Even if I drink a ton of water, I get these dry hands. And recently I've been um, heating up coconut oil and then grating turmeric root into the coconut oil and then letting that sit in, uh, in, in water, you know, in like a double boiler with a mason jar until the oil turns yellow and then rubbing that onto my skin. And it's, it's amazing. Just within about a day and a half, a lot of the scaliness and the dryness just completely disappears. So I can definitely attest to the beneficial effects of, of turmeric and its anti-inflammatory properties. So, um, Doug, you, you had mentioned too, a couple others, astragalus and andrographis. You want to say what those yeah. address? Yeah. Yeah. Astragalus is a, is a really good one. Um, you could add it to that tea that you mentioned, although I will say that it won't be nearly as tasty because astragalus does not taste very good. Um, but it's a, it's an antiviral actually. So it actually helps to knock out, um, the, uh, the, the virus itself. Um, andrographis is one. You wouldn't necessarily do it when you're sick already. Um, andrographis is a, um, an immune uh, modulator, uh, immune booster, actually. So it, um, it, it's good to be taking uh, like during flu season when you're not sick. Uh, there's not much point in taking it when you are sick because your immune system is already boosted at that point. But, um, sure. yeah, through, through hormesis, it just kind of um, activates the immune system and actually keeps you um, a little bit more um, defended against uh, any of these kind of things that are, are floating around. Um, if there's any kind of um, mucus production, like in the lungs, like a, a productive cough, um, thyme and uh, fenugreek are both really good for that to help as expectorants to help kind of bring that up. Um, okay. And that's, all, that's all I can think of off the top of my head, but those are those are some good herbs as well. Cool. Well, the, um, we just we definitely want to encourage people. Um, no, again, not medical advice. However, it is reasonable to encourage people to use herbs um, and uh, some of these rooty vegetables and um, things it, that they, supplements uh, in such a way as to boost their immune system and try to treat yourself as naturally as possible. Um, you know, and just make yourself uh, stronger through natural means. I, I really think this is the way that the, the body was meant to be. Um, these things exist in our world and around us for a reason. Uh, we're supposed to interact with the world in this way. Um, so I, I really think it's a, it's a valid area of research. And in my own life, have found really, really beneficial effects um, just from using the right supplements, uh, the right herbs, the right vegetables. Um, and especially, as we mentioned last week, uh, the high-fat diet, uh, good fats, good saturated fats, grass-fed butter. Um, you're going to get a lot of nutrients from that, and also uh, bone broth. Um, we had done mm -hmm. a recipe two weeks ago for the chicken soup, and I would really encourage everybody to go to the Weston A. Price Foundation's website. Just Google Weston A. Price Foundation, and um, 
look up uh, Sally Fallon's work. Uh, you can also search uh, Sally Fallon on YouTube and find a lot of her lectures there and just um, get your feet wet in the in the world of the of the high fat diet, the good saturated fats. So, um, well, that's our show for today. Um, that's that's what we've got for you. Thank you very much for listening and for spending this time with us. And uh, we hope that you all do stay healthy. And we really, really hope that nobody gets sick this year. Um, and mm -hmm. do your best to stay well. So, thanks very much. And uh, be sure to tune in to the Health and Wellness Show uh, next week. We'll be on next Monday again at 2 p.m. Eastern.